When are people going to see that nothing ain't never going to change unless somebody finally makes up his mind to stand up and fight? Damn. Netrich Radio presents Hopping Mad with Will McLeod and Arliss Bunny. Now, here's Will and Arliss. Welcome to Hopping Mad. I'm Will McLeod. And I'm Arliss Bunny. And today, well, frankly, I had promised myself in particular that I really wasn't going to talk about the primary anymore because we're basically coming into the final days and I just thought, why keep stirring the pot? But the misogyny has gotten so overwhelming that I just can't not talk about it. I just, I have to say something. And on top of that, I really found an incredible article this weekend. I'll put the link for it up on our site. But it's called Misogyny Rules the 2016 Election by Socialist, by the way, Victoria A. Brownworth. And Victoria is an absolutely eminent journalist. This is somebody who, and author. She's written 30 books. She's won the Lambda Literary Award. She was nominated for a Pulitzer. She's written for the New York Times, Village Voice, Baltimore Sun, Los Angeles Times, Boston Globe, Philadelphia Inquirer, The Nation, Ms. Slate. I mean, this is a powerhouse of a journalist. And she has written an article that I really think everyone should read. She absolutely sums it up in the most beautiful, evocative, and clear way. Misogyny really has risen to breathtaking new levels of vitriol, but it's not from Trump or the right. It's from Bernie and his cult followers. And I need to say here, by the way, that Victoria started out thinking that she was going to vote for Bernie. She started out liking Bernie. Initially, we were told that all of this vitriol, all of these sexist attacks came from outliers, from People who were supporters of Bernie, but they were outliers. But instead, we now know, really, this is coming from Bernie himself, and he's unapologetic about it. He lies with it when he talks about his being an honorary woman. In the 1970s, Bernie published numerous essays, which were extraordinarily sexist. And we are all meant to completely ignore that now because they're, you know, old. He only used to think that way. He used to be a sexist. Bernie has, he's the only candidate in the entire campaign that has no women other than his wife in the leadership of his campaign. Bernie has said quite vehemently, and he, we all heard it, and my last rant on the show was about it, when he talked about Hillary being unqualified. He only backed down after receiving immense pressure, and honestly, I think it's what he actually believes. I think that's what's going on in his head. Now, Bernie has turned from that to seeding both virtual and actual violence, and again, he is unrepentant and unapologetic. He refers to verbal, rage-filled threatening sexist statements as free speech. What happened in Nevada to Roberta Lang and Senator Barbara Boxer is appalling in every way. It included ongoing physical threats. It included threats against Roberta's children. And we have just one of the dozens of death threats received by Roberta Lang. I'm going to play that now. 
Hi, Roberta Lane. This is a citizen of the United States of America, and I just wanted to let you know that I think people like you should be hung in a public execution to show this world that we won't stand for this sort of corruption. I don't know what kind of money they're paying for you, but I don't know how you sleep at night. You are a sick, twisted piece of shit, and I hope you'll burn for this. And you can return my call at I'd love to go into further detail with you about this, though I'm sure you don't have the courage to do so, you cowardless bitch running off this stage. I hope people find you. Okay, folks, when they say this sort of corruption, they mean the rules that the Clinton and Sanders campaigns agreed to in advance of the convention. And also, the rule that only Democrats could attend in Nevada has been in place for 50 years. It's not something that Roberta Lang dreamed up. It's not something new. It's not something that the Sanders campaign couldn't have known in advance. It's been in place for 50 years. So now let's talk about revolution. Sanders is in complete denial that it would actually be more revolutionary to elect a woman far more than electing yet another old white man, regardless of how angry he is or what his views are. He's in complete denial that women's issues are not separate from, but are core to progressive values. Revolution is action and policy, not just yelling your way through the same stump speech from the beginning of the campaign to the end. Sanders referred to Planned Parenthood as the establishment after the attack and murders in Colorado. In fact, he refers to everyone on the left who disagrees with him as establishment, including Senator Barbara Boxer, who is consistently listed as having one of the five most liberal voting records in the Senate. Here's what I think Bernie really means when he says revolution. He means that the privilege and rage of white men could and should be nurtured and encouraged to intimidate everyone else into silence. His bros have been successful in caucuses, but when voters have a chance to privately and without intimidation or peer pressure select the candidate of their choice, three million more have chosen Hillary. Bernie could have made an enormous difference in the future of the Democratic Party. It would have been absolutely amazing. Most especially, he could have made an enormous difference in the candidates who choose to run in the future. Instead, he continues to fill his cult of misogyny, and I'm joining women like Victoria Brownworth in calling him on it. Next up, Will is going to talk to us about housing here on Hopping Mad. Alicia Rudd was eight when she disappeared from the D.C. General Homeless Shelter in 2014. She hasn't been seen since. Her family has described her as desperate to leave the shelter, saying that her clothes were always dirty and her stomach always empty. When the extended family members talked to the press, they said that she would pretend to have asthma attacks in order to stay in their homes overnight so she wouldn't have to go back to the shelter. Several infants have died in D.C. General due to insufficient bedding, and residents are often forced to sleep on the floors in hallways of the old hospital. The rooms are overrun with roaches, rodents, and mold. Sections of the ceiling are collapsing from water damage. Staff members have been fired from the hospital in recent years for what the city calls inappropriate contact with residents. This official language refers to staff members trading blankets or juice for sexual favors. Relicia vanished with a janitor named Cahil Tatum, who worked at the shelter. He and his wife were later found dead. He of a suicide in a D.C. park, her of a homicide in a Red Roof Inn. 
police and volunteers have scoured parks, dredged ponds, and sent divers underwater to look for Relisha's remains. Some allege that she was sold into slavery by Tatum, but no one knows what happened to her nearly two years after her disappearance. In the past few weeks, the D.C. government has voted to close D.C. General, opting to construct six smaller homeless shelters throughout the city. But the vote was contentious. The facilities D.C. is building will include shared bathrooms, just like the shared bathrooms at D.C. General, where child abuse was rampant and families were forced to live in unsanitary conditions. For one of a small amount of money, around $3.1 million, the D.C. government could have provided homeless families with the safety and dignity of private bathrooms. They did on the same day as they made the decision about D.C. General, approve nearly $60 million in tax breaks to keep a single company within D.C. borders. I don't want to provide a false choice here. The point is that there was money to do both of these things, but the council elected not to. You know what's amazing about this, just really quickly? Yeah. Washington, D.C. doesn't have the same kind of budget constraints that states and other city governments do. Washington, D.C. is directly under Congress. Washington, D.C. is federal. Therefore, like MMT, they have a fiat economy there. So they should, if this country was operating properly, there is no choice between a tax break for this company and whatever it takes for this homeless shelter to have what it needs or for this group of homeless shelters to have what it needs. The money exists to do all those things. It is never an either or in Washington, D.C., unlike, frankly, every other city in the country. However, we do have Congress that tells us no. If we had a country that worked properly, then we would be able to fund everything we need in D.C. and have it be a world-class city. And that's the point. The money is there to do both of these things, even under the system we're currently using, but they decided not to. The homelessness crisis saw people crammed into supply closets at D.C. General during the winter this year. In D.C., the shelters are full, dirty, understaffed, and undersupplied. There aren't enough rooms, much less food or blankets. And in some cases, people are bedding down in closets, usually reserved for food storage, but there's not enough food to store. There are a number of mostly failed programs designed to help homelessness, not just here in D.C., but throughout the country. I'm going to discuss two of them, Title V of McKinney-Vento and Section 8 Housing. The McKinney-Vento Homelessness Assistance Act allows charitable organizations to purchase unused or underutilized property from the federal government. The problem is that the property that the federal government owns is often extremely expensive. While certain orgs within the charity industrial complex might be able to afford a decent facility, most of them are like D.C. General. It's named D.C. General because it was once the D.C. General Hospital. The hospital closed because the aging facility really needed to be knocked down. But instead of knocking it down, they put homeless people in it. Any federal property likely to be affordable for this purpose is also likely to be uninhabitable, unsanitary, or dangerous like D.C. General. Section 8 housing, on the other hand, provides housing vouchers to low-income people, which help pay for rent or the purchase of a home. The waiting list varies, but it can be as long as 10 years. Five years is common. In many cases, by the time an applicant's name rises high enough on the waiting list to receive Section 8 assistance, they're no longer eligible for it. In order to get on the waiting list, one needs to register. And in order to register, one needs to figure out when the open registration days are. Often, that period is five days per year. The program is so completely overloaded at this point 
that it simply doesn't function at all. Section 8 does some good, and it provides a lot of controls. There are already controls on the amount of rent the landlord is allowed to charge, so they can't raise rent over and above the assistance level. But there are also programs that encourage the development of public housing facilities, and I argue that those need to be scrapped moving forward. Scrapped because the creation of housing projects is a way to confine poverty to certain areas of a city or community. Nearly every place has a bad part of town where people are poor, crime is high, and opportunity is low. Housing project programs that are designed to create affordable housing simply consolidate these problems. Public housing buildings are often very poorly constructed and are all eventually demolished because they fall apart rather quickly. And then when the buildings are demolished and the public housing is closed, an entire community is torn apart and scattered to the winds. They lose their connections and support both to the local community, to doctors, to social workers, charities, everyone whom they turned to before for help. So instead of just talking about that and all of the problems with Section 8, mainly that it's not available because of how overloaded the program is, or that a lot of what it's trying to do is actually harmful, we could Focus on what it can do in the modern era. Vouchers, rent vouchers, or helping people purchase a starter home. We just had a housing bubble that burst. We might be in the midst of another one, considering that there are about 18 million vacant homes in the U.S., and that number is rising. If we could simply give those homes away, we could house the entire populations of Norway, Denmark, and Finland, and still have room to throw the population of one of the Baltics in, like Estonia. We have enough vacant homes to house entire countries within our borders, but it's not so simple as deciding to do it and then declaring it will be so. Let's say for a moment that we want to put homeless people in them, and I do. There are two ways to go about it. The first way, which I don't think will work, is to purchase them all and make them available to anyone who's homeless. There are a myriad of state and local laws to deal with here. There are local ordinances, there are housing authorities, homeowners associations, predatory lenders, and myriads of other groups and problems which make this extremely complicated. Mass purchase of those homes by the government would be difficult, expensive, and not guaranteed to succeed. And they run into other problems. We have a lot of homes in places where no one can really find work. Many of these homes were built as retirement homes. They're in places like Florida, where there doesn't need to be a job for every house because a lot of people just don't work after a certain age. And furthermore, buying all of those homes creates even more problems. We'd have to bus homeless people around the country and put them in the communities they aren't familiar with. Looking at what's happening with refugees in Sweden, we see that problem exactly. There are refugees who end up in public housing in rural Sweden, where there's no work for them to do, where they're culturally isolated, where the communities look on even their fellow Swedes as outsiders if they come from different communities, and where they have difficulty adjusting from life in one of the world's hottest countries to life in one of the world's coldest. That kind of top-down, you will go where we put you, and you will be grateful even when we create problems for you with our refusal to consider your wants or needs, creates more problems. There are people who would rather be homeless in Stockholm than housed in a rural locale where they'll feel isolated, hated, and alone. And finally, we'll see situations like D.C. General. People will end up being placed in homes that are unsafe or unfinished, unsanitary, but they'll have to make do because the system has decided that X person belonged in Y home in that top-down construction. That same thing will absolutely happen in the U.S. if we do this top-down and force people to move. 
will concentrate poverty yet again by creating another modern version of the housing project system. So the government can't just seize homes and give them to homeless people. Well, it could, but it would be expensive and authoritarian and wouldn't work anyway. The government also can't force people to move from the communities where they live to the communities where housing is available. Well, again, it could, but expensive, authoritarian, and probably wouldn't work. There's another way to do this, though. Modest proposal. Let the homeless buy housing. It's simple. Let homeless and low-income people choose where they want to live and then give them the means to purchase a starter home or rent a decent apartment in that community. Use a modernized Section 8, funded well enough so that there are no waiting lists, set it on a sliding scale based on the local cost of living, and give people the means to purchase and maintain homes or condos or to rent apartments. Let the people receiving assistance choose. Let them stay in their communities and let them build those communities up. Let them participate in the American dream. And for homeowners who are underwater on their mortgages, we can give them Section 8 too. We can help families stay in homes who might otherwise end up on the street. What we should provide is not a government seizure, not an authoritarian program, not an unsustainable shelter system, but homes. We should look... This solves every single problem we have with housing. Landlords and developers get paid for building and maintaining homes. Individuals have the freedom to live where they wish to live and the same ability to leave poorly managed rental properties that everyone else has. So rather than creating another failed shelter system or building more bleak state-owned housing projects that give way to urban decay or creating another top-down unsustainable solution or handing things over to the charity industrial complex that has never had the resource to solve these problems outright, we should look at the core of the problem and solve it. The problem we had simply stated, is threefold. First, that people who need homes don't have the money to buy or rent them. Second, that many of the current buyers can't afford to pay their mortgages. Third, that property owners have way too many properties they can't find buyers or renters for. So let's just fix the problem. Section 8 was created in 1937, and a hell of a lot has changed since then. We should just modernize it and just fix that biggest problem that we have with housing. Otherwise, we're going to have more D.C. generals, more Relisha Rudds disappearing, more infants dying because there aren't proper beds for them, and an unending cycle of poverty, urban decay, hopelessness, and death based on using the old solutions which have been proved resoundingly not to work. Arliss? So in Los Angeles, they, are, they have taken an idea that started in Salt Lake City, and they've cloned it into Los Angeles. And essentially what they've determined there is that if they provide housing first, and in fact, I believe that's what the program is called, housing first. If they provide housing first to people who are homeless, the model has always been they need to get them off drugs first and they need to get them a job. They need to get, so they've been coming at it from that direction. And what they've discovered in Salt Lake and in other places in the country, but now in Los Angeles, is that amazingly, if you provide housing first, that a huge percentage of people who are homeless will then leverage themselves into better health. It gives health workers a place to be able to reach out to them. They are finding that they leverage that into treatment for drug addiction and that, you know, they start to move in a direction that brings them back into society. But that's because these people have choices, just like Will's been saying. Yeah, those, when someone is able to make the choices, they're able to move forward. 
And that's not... The housing first is not perfect. There are some people who are put into housing first programs who ought to be in some kind of inpatient care. Sure. And uh, in a discussion with a fire marshal uh, recently, she told me that there have been several fires caused by that situation, people who really don't belong on their own. But that has to do with the mental illness crisis that we're not doing anything about. The fact that we closed our mental hospitals and don't have a place where people can go and just who, who need to be taken care of by society. If we do these things, though, we can provide those choices and really lift communities out of poverty. Uh, coming up on Hopping Mad, I will be talking about Gresham's Law and Criminographic Wall Street. We're back on Hopping Mad, and later in this show, our interview is with David Day, and, and we're going to be spending a lot of time talking about the bottom-up perspective of the global financial crisis, and in particular, the foreclosure crisis. But before we get there, I wanted to touch on a few top-down things first. For those of you who missed it, in episodes 18 through 22 of this show, I did an in-depth review of banking terminology, the derivatives market, mortgage-backed securities, Dodd-Frank, which, by the way, in that show was immediately followed by an excellent interview with Alexis Goldstein of Americans for Financial Reform. And then there was some thinking also about 21st century Glass-Steagall. This interview with David today is the other side of that coin. Today's about people and individuals and what happened to them, how they fought back, and what they discovered. The great Rolling Stone journalist Matt Taibbi has gifted all of us with what is probably the most accurate and certainly the most indelible description of Wall Street banksters in general and Goldman Sachs specifically. You have undoubtedly heard this before, but it is well worth repetition. Quote, the world's most powerful investment bank is a great vampire squid wrapped around the face of humanity, relentlessly jamming its blood funnel into anything that smells like money. When we're talking later in the show with David, this will make particular sense to you. It will come into sharp focus. But I want to talk a little bit about the bankster mentality. Back in 2009, the Times of London did a massive piece on Goldman Sachs. For the piece, the Goldman Sachs chief executive Lloyd Blankfein was interviewed and asked, is it possible to have too much ambition? Is it possible to be too successful? To which Blankfein responded, I don't want people in this firm to think that they have accomplished as much for themselves as they can and go on vacation. As the guardian of the interests of the shareholders, and by the way, for the purposes of society, I like them to continue to do what they are doing. I don't want to put a cap on their ambition. It's hard for me to argue for a cap on their compensation. He went on to say he's just a banker, quote, doing God's work, unquote. Meanwhile, Time Magazine's Justin Fox wrote a piece for which he interviewed Goldman Sachs International Vice Chairman Brian Griffiths, who was a former advisor to Margaret Thatcher, in which Griffiths says, We have to tolerate the inequality as a way to achieve greater prosperity and opportunity for all. You know what? Someone's going to have to explain to me how that works exactly, but the reality is he doesn't mean for all. He means for the top 1%. And this was the most amazing quote from a Goldman Sachs employee. Goldman Sachs trader Alessio Rastani said to the BBC, I don't really care about having fixed an economy, having fixed a situation. Our job is to make money from it. I go to bed every night and I dream of another recession. He continued, when the market crashes, if you know what to do, if you have the right plan set up, you can make a lot of money from this. So there's something called Gresham's dynamic or Gresham's law. 
It says, and I quote, when a government overvalues one type of money and undervalues another, the overvalued money will leave the country or disappear from circulation into hordes. People will hoard it, is what they're saying. While the undervalued money will flood into circulation. And that is often referred to by economists in a shorthand by saying bad money drives out good. And I can hear you about there. You're saying, uh, well, what does that mean? And so what? Well, this is named for Sir Thomas Gresham, who was a Tudor dynasty English financier who got stuck trying to explain to Elizabeth I back in 1558 why gold had flooded out of England after her father, Henry VIII, had debased the precious metals in English coinage in order to increase the government's income without having to raise taxes and thereby profiting from the seniorage. In a famous economics paper by economist George Akerlof, written in 1970, and it's called The Market for Lemons, Quality, Uncertainty, and the Market Mechanism, here's what he says. Information asymmetry means that the seller knows more about the product than the buyer. Now, I want you to think about that when we're talking with David later and the foreclosure crisis. The seller knows more about the product than the buyer. It is an asymmetric market. It is information asymmetry. In 2001, Ekerlof was jointly the recipient of the Nobel Prize in Economics with Michael Spence and Joseph Stiglitz. And the research, all of that research, was on asymmetric information. And what they're saying, the net of what they're saying, is that dishonest dealings tend to drive honest dealings out of existence. The cost is not only in the cost of the cheat, but also in the lost opportunity cost, which is the result of driving honest firms out of the market. Control fraud, something called control fraud, creates a Gresham dynamic. A criminal enterprise in which people that control a seemingly legit enterprise use it as a weapon to defraud. And again, when we're talking about the foreclosure crisis, I want this idea to come to mind. Control fraud. The Gresham dynamic prevents truly legitimate enterprises from being competitive in an environment like the environment that existed that ramped up to the foreclosure crisis. Control frauds cause greater economic losses than all other forms of property crime combined. Wall Street and the City of London became a criminographic environment due to the Gresham dynamic and control fraud. So what's a criminographic environment? Firms have codes of conduct and say crap like this from J.P. Morgan. Our integrity and reputation depend on our ability to do the right thing, even when it's not the easy thing. Or this from Goldman. No financial incentive or opportunity, regardless of the bottom line, justifies a departure from our values. <coughs> In a new survey of 1,200 financial industry executives that was funded by Labaton Sucro, which is a law firm that's known to represent Wall Street whistleblowers, had the following results. This study had the following results. First of all, Dodd-Frank so far has had little result. About a third of those earning more than $500,000 a year have witnessed or have firsthand knowledge of illegal actions. A third say that ethics in the industry have remained unchanged. A third believe that the incentive structures for their company incentivizes corruption. Nearly 20% think they must cheat to succeed. 10% felt that they were being pressured to compromise ethical standards or violate the law. 24% would use insider trading to make $10 if they thought they wouldn't get caught. And 52% believe their competitors engage in illegal activity. So that's what I mean about the Gresham dynamic. Bad money drives out good. Cheating 
drives out good. Good people leave because they can't compete with these guys. So part of the problem and part of how we get there is that economics education in universities across the country teach that greed is good. Economics programs are requiring an ethics course, but then they negate it with everything else they teach. And students aren't actually even being taught how economics really work. They're receiving a politically-based justification for Wall Street's twisted, failed version of capitalism. And of course, you know, I'm going to say, (laughs) of course I'm going to say something about modern monetary policy here, because MMT is not being taught in the majority of universities for these very reasons, because MMT exposes the cheat in many ways. And, by the way, what if the fact that the cost of a college degree from a public university has increased by 1,120% since 1978? What about that, do you think, is contributing to the number of graduates who feel like they really need to take a job in the financial industry just to stay afloat, just to pay off their college loans? Is there a solution? Well, this is really interesting because here is a speech from somebody who knows from whence he speaks. In October of 2014, the former president of the New York Federal Reserve Bank, William C. Dudley, made a speech to regulators, bankers, and Fed officials. His speech was called Enhancing Financial Stability by Improving Culture in the Financial Services Industry. He personally would have preferred to see more bankers in jail. He thought they belonged there. He said the pattern of bad behavior has not ended despite the necessity of public intervention to stabilize the industry. In other words, government needed to step in more and still needs to step in more. He says the industry has lost the public trust. And certainly in this campaign season, that is absolutely plain. That's practically what Bernie Sanders has based his entire campaign on. 42% of people believe that Wall Street harms this country. And honestly, yeah. 68% believe that the people on Wall Street are not honest or moral. He quoted William Bennis. Ethical problems in organizations originate not with a few bad apples, but with the barrel makers. Mr. Dudley thinks the real issue is likely to be the concept of too big to manage, and therefore the solution is to break up these really, really large banks, these really, really large players at the top. And he includes in that J.P. Morgan, Bank of America, etc. But as examples, he cites things like the Credit Suisse tax evasion debacle and the London Whale. Those, I mean, those are obvious things, but they should have been obvious inside their companies. They should have been caught way before they were. Banking has moved away, he says, from the traditional model of boring commercial banking and into transaction-oriented banking. And that, of course, is exactly what Elizabeth Warren has been saying all this time. Clients are now counterparts. They're the other side of the trade rather than the partnerships. In other words, brokers are supposed to be trading for their customers. They're trading for their brokerages and not their customers. Interactions are depersonalized. Allegiance is often to an external network of traders rather than to their employer. And an example of that would be the illegal manipulations of the LIBOR. Mr. Dudley believes that financial institutions exist in part to benefit the public and not simply for the benefit of shareholders, employees, and corporate clients. Now, realize that in this day and age, that is revolutionary. In this day and age, that is amazing to hear from somebody at the top of the financial industry. His biggest emphasis is on how incentive packages can be used to 
reinforce regulatory authority and the law. Two aspects of this. He thinks that companies really ought to be deferring a large portion of compensation and the composition of compensation. And by deferring, he means that compensation doesn't vest for several years. And he recommends that it begin at five years and then vest fully in 10. And his point there is that he wants executives looking down the long road instead of how they make money in the next five minutes. In addition to that, it would allow sufficient time to determine the legality of a given set of transactions before a bonus is paid against those transactions. Essentially, it would operate like a performance bond. Currently, fines for wrongdoing are paid by shareholders, but in the case of deferred compensations, those involved would see a drop in their personal deferred compensation and thereby, therefore, instead of shareholders essentially taking the heat and bearing the cost, the guys who commit the crime would be bearing the cost. Now, I don't know why that's such an epiphany and an amazing thing, but it is pretty incredible to hear the president of the New York Fed talking about it. Compensation should be a debt as opposed to an equity. We can't be paying these people in stock. The Dodd-Frank Title II requires sufficient long-term unsecured debt to be available to recapitalize a failing bank, and it would be meaningful if a component of this debt was contributed by the senior management and the firm's material risk takers. In other words, he says these guys have to have skin in the game. It can't just be some corporate entity that goes down. These guys have to go down with their ship. This alone would focus on maximizing the true long-term health of an enterprise. For younger risk-takers who are early in their career, in other words, younger employees, finance pays better than other industries, and if you're caught in an unethical or illegal action, you're banned from working in the industry again. Dudley says, you get caught once, it's a zero-tolerance deal, you're out. Dudley has a number of technical details about how he would put this all together and how it would be enforced, but the bottom line, is that acting illegally or unethically would cost young employees the privilege of continuing to work in the industry. He says culture cannot be managed. It absolutely cannot be managed. It must be lived. And I have to say, I was in an online conversation with somebody this week about the situation with the Sanders campaign and what's going on in the Sanders campaign. And that person kept talking about how the anger that is coming in waves, the rage that's coming in waves out of the Sanders campaign is the fault of Jeff Weber or is the fault of the Bernie bros. I'm sorry, but no, absolutely not. That is a leadership-led issue. That is top-down. That comes from Bernie. The same is true of any company in the country. It is leadership-led. If you want to know how legitimate, how honest, how moral a company is, you look at their executives because that's what they're driving down into their organization. The conclusion to William Dudley's speech is, in conclusion, if those of you here today as stewards of these large financial institutions do not do your part in pushing forcefully to change across the industry, then bad behavior will undoubtedly persist. If that were to occur, the inevitable conclusion will be reached that your firms are too big and complex to manage effectively. In that case, financial stability concerns would dictate that your firms need to be dramatically downsized and simplified so they can be managed effectively. And that is from a guy at the Fed's most important bank, the New York Federal Reserve. So it isn't just us. It isn't just us out here 
talking endlessly about reforming the financial system and reforming Wall Street. Insiders are talking about it too. And I think there's a point in time at which we need to recognize that and reinforce that and support those people. Change doesn't come just from the outside. Change is holistic. It has to happen inside and outside. And we have to help people like William Dudley make a difference. We have to put our pressure there. Up next on Hopping Mad, we have a really incredible interview with journalist and author David Dayen. Stay tuned here on Netroots Radio. We're back on Hopping Mad, and our interview today is with David Dayen. David is a contributor to Salon and The Intercept and a weekly columnist for The Fiscal Times and The New Republic. He also writes for The American Prospect, The Guardian, Vice, and Huffington Post. If, like me, you want to be sure to catch all that David writes, and trust me when I say I never miss anything, you can go to his blog at daviddayentumblr.com. And sign up for his weekly newsletter. We will put a link to that on our website for you so you can get to it easily. It appears magically in your mailbox and occasionally contains a photo of his beautiful dog, Stella, who passed away just over a year ago. And one last thing, David just became a New York Times bestselling author with this book, Chain of Title. Congratulations and welcome, David. Do Do you know something I don't? New York Times bestselling? Yeah, I heard that you made the top of the business sales, whatever the niche is for business sales. I hear you made the top of that this week. You just broke some news to me. I uh, found it on Twitter. I could be wrong, but I, I found it on Twitter. So I will have to look for that. That's uh, amazing. Uh, thank you for letting me know. Well, it's an incredible book, and it is something really, folks, everybody should read this. I got both the hard copy, and if you saw mine, it's bleeding blue highlighter, but also I got the audio version from audible.com, and it's great. So both of those together, well worth purchasing and going through. So that's the sales pitch. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Thank you for David, every other journalist or author who wrote a book or even a lot of the articles about the foreclosure crisis used the occasional example of this is what happened to this family or that person. But the perspective of their overall work was top down. Somehow you grabbed a hold of this story, not only from the other end, bottom up, but through the lens and lives of the small band of people who sacrificed their relationships, their jobs, their sleep for years in order to drag out into the open this criminographic environment that surrounded this crisis. How did you find that voice? Yeah, it was very important to me that if I was going to add to this collection of books about the financial crisis, which I believe there is somewhere on the internet, someone who's chronicled how many there have been, and it's over 300. If I was going to add to that canon I was going to have to do something different. And I did very consciously want to take it from the bottom up, like you said. And when I found these individuals who who I worked with as sources all the way going back to 2010, when I worked for Fire Dog Lake, I knew that this was a compelling way to tell this story from the ground level, from the people who were most affected by the crisis, and that's foreclosure victims. And the fact that these three individuals did all this investigation to drag this out into the light, as you say, and, you know, arguably did more investigation than the state or federal governments. It was a compelling frame in which to tell this particular story, which kind of 
picks up where something like the big short leaves off and tells the story of what happened after all that and how the fraud that was inherent sort of in the securitization and the origination of loans was also there as part of a cover up in the foreclosure process. Before we get into the technical side of all of this, can you please tell us a bit about the power of shame? Yeah, thank you for bringing that up. Uh, it's it, That is a really interesting part of this. You know, 95% of foreclosures go uncontested. And one of the reasons is that the foreclosure victims just don't have the resources to fight. But one of the other key victims is, uh, uh, reasons is this idea that I think has just sort of been in the cultural firmament for the last several decades, which is if you miss a mortgage payment, then you're somehow a bad person, that you are a deadbeat. You know, we heard this most famously in the rant by Rick Santelli that is credited with being, you know, part of the beginnings of the Tea Party, where he talks about the losers' mortgages and the people who uh, bought too much house and and we shouldn't have to subsidize them. The idea is that foreclosure is an individual problem, that it's something that the a failing on the part of the borrower, it has nothing to do with the lender. And even though there are two sides to a mortgage contract and the lender has the responsibility when he lends out to ensure that that borrower has the ability to pay, that's why he gets an interest rate because he's taking on risk. So, yeah, I really wanted to explore that. And I, I think that my subjects, the three individuals who did stand up and fight back, one of their key things that they did is fought through that shame, fought through that isolation that is created by foreclosure. You know, they were all in South Florida where you had this massive foreclosure crisis, but nobody talked about it. You would see the U-Hauls on somebody else's front lawn, but you would never hear directly because everyone was sort of afraid and humiliated by this whole situation. And so I think Lisa, at least, and, and the others, too, consciously set out to break through that to band people together, to tell them it's not your fault, it's not something you did, you were caught up in a criminal scheme, and this scheme continues and persists, and we have to get the word out so that people are protected and there can be a better solution for people. In a criminal trial, there are rules of evidence, and they're basically invaluable. And if a defendant hasn't been Mirandized, it's all over for the prosecution. But right. in foreclosure cases, the defendant is a deadbeat, and that's even how the judge sees the defendant. And there are basically no laws that act as governors for the plaintiff. What? I mean, how does that happen? <laughs> I mean, I don't know if I go so far as to say no laws, but there are these varying state laws around foreclosure. And the problem is, is that really up until 2008, nobody knew what they were. Even the judges that adjudicated foreclosure cases were really, I mean, maybe ignorant is a strong word, but they, they were not aware of the very precise steps that had to be taken in order to prove standing. And standing is, is a really basic kind of issue in any kind of court proceeding. If I stole your car, or if you're accusing me of stealing your car, you would have to come up with a document that basically proved that you own the car. Otherwise, no judge in America is going to give you a ruling 
based on your hearsay that you happen to own the car. But that's what we saw millions of times over in the foreclosure crisis. These mortgage companies would foreclose on people and go into court and produce documents that were false to try to prove standing. And sadly enough, in so many cases, the the courts waved it through. There were uh, some cases where they did not, and it depended on the judge. And, uh, you know, foreclosure law is adjudicated at the state and really even the local level. It depends on the judge you get at some point, you know, whether or not you're going to be successful. And so, but the, you know, after 2008 and this discovery that uh, so many of these documents were false, a foreclosure defense kind of industry popped up, particularly in Florida, but all over the country, to challenge these cases. And it was moderately successful, at least at the outset. The problem is, is that the judge sort of had this choice to make, whether to protect the integrity of their courtrooms by saying that false documents are false and we're not going to grant foreclosures based on them, or to say, well, this might be a problem, but I don't want to give a deadbeat a free home on a technicality. And and that was sort of the ice that had to be broken through throughout this scandal. And uh, sadly, there weren't enough judges that were willing to, to follow the law. Okay, so let's get into that then. Would you describe for us what these advocates came to call securitization fail or what lack of standing or privity and why it's even more pernicious than it first appears to be and what's so important about chain of title? Right, so the chain of title refers to your ability to go into your local county recording office And look at the chain of ownership on your property from the moment it was constructed all the way to today. And that's every transfer of ownership along that chain. That is what has been settled in recording property law for over 350 years. 150 years before we had a constitution, we had recording laws because this is seen as so fundamental to the development of society. If you can't buy or sell property with the confidence that nobody else has a claim on it, then capitalism in some sense breaks down. This is the difference between developed and undeveloped countries by the view of many economists and observers and experts. uh, You know, the ability to have well-settled property law that is public that everyone can access. Well, the banks did not do that during the housing bubble. It was seen as inconvenient, too costly, and too time-consuming. And so they created a number of different shortcuts. And they the big thing that they really didn't do, and this is really what is called securitization fail, is that in the process of creating mortgage-backed securities, they what they did is they would buy up loans from originators. An investment bank would buy them up, and the investment bank would create a trust. And the trust, which was administered by a trustee, which was usually a different bank, would hold all of these mortgages. And then they would pass through the revenue to investors in the mortgage-backed securities, which were created out of the mortgages in the trust. And the governing documents for that, which is known as the pooling and servicing agreement, is incredibly clear. The mortgages had to be conveyed to the trust within 90 days of its establishment. 
You couldn't do it a single day after that. And when I say conveyed, I mean the physical documents with wet ink signatures, uh, not, not electronic or copies or anything like that. The real original documents have to be given to the trustee, stored by a custodian, and put into the trust, what is known as funding the trust, within that 90-day cutoff. If it's not, there are, first of all, the the transfer is seen as void. And second of all, there are major tax implications to that because if you don't have the document in the trust, if the trust is unfunded, it is no longer, it no longer qualifies for any tax breaks. And the tax consequences for these, what are called remix, which are real estate mortgage investment conduits, is 100%. That is the tax penalty if you fail to follow these required steps. So this is a big deal. They knew this going in. They signed the documents knowing that they had to fund these trusts and they didn't do it. And this was sort of a ticking time bomb. It might not have been a problem if everybody paid their mortgages and they all got releases on the lien. However, what we saw is the bubble popped and collapsed and hundreds of thousands, millions of people went into default. And when they did, in order to properly foreclose, The foreclosing entity, which was usually the trustee, had to present those documents proving that they own the loan and they didn't have them. And so they hired third parties to mock them up. And this was resulted in the presentation of millions of pieces of false evidence to be used in court cases all over the country and to be submitted to to government offices, these county recording offices, as if they were legal. And Lisa and Michael and Lynn, my three subjects, saw this in their own cases, that the documents that they were handed were were fraudulent. And really, it was not hard to figure this out. I mean, Lynn, through some basic sleuthing, figured out that the date on the document was three months after she was actually sued for foreclosure. So it was a mortgage assignment saying that the company that was foreclosing on her and suing her received the mortgage three months after they started the lawsuit, which is kind of funny. The witness on the documents, a guy named Carell Harp, Lynn found through uh, various searches that he was in state prison at the time that he was suppo- uh, that he supposedly signed this document. And what she learned through further research is that these documents were routinely forged, that there were corporate resolutions to have one individual be the corporate officer who was signing on behalf of a bank signing them over. And what she found is that dozens of people would sign in that one person's name in order to speed up the assembly line of these millions of documents that had to go out. So that's just a sampling of the real problems there were with these documents, which made it easy to see that this was a tremendous cover-up of the original sin, which is securitization failed. If I was going to invite Linda Green to my home for dinner, how many places would I have to set at the table? Probably about 20. Linda Green was one of the main corporate officers, allegedly. She signed on behalf of 20 different banks at one point. She was signing over these documents, including banks and mortgage companies that were defaulted and defunct at the time that she was signing these documents. So she was signing on behalf of a company that didn't exist anymore. And because her name was Linda Green, it was easy to spell. She was one of the primary people whose name was forged. And many different people at the company she worked at, which was a third-party document processing company called DocX, 
were signing on Linda Green's behalf. They called it surrogate signing, as if it was just sort of a nice name that they put on forgery. That's what they termed it to try to get out of any kind of legal exposure. But yeah, you would need uh, quite a few place settings for all the Linda Greens out there. (laughs) So I know there are listeners out there who are thinking, well, at the very least, this doesn't apply to me because I don't own a home. But because of all the non-mortgage-backed securities, the non-NBS, these falsified securities, no one is immune to this. This absolutely pervades our entire economy. Can you spell that out in a little more detail for folks? Certainly. I mean, it certainly affects anyone with a mortgage, particularly because the mortgage servicing industry routinely engages in what is called servicer-driven defaults, where people who never missed a mortgage payment are induced into defaulting because the mortgage servicer has various compensation models that actually favor default if they can rack up a bunch of fees. And so if you combine servicer-driven defaults with the fact that the documents themselves are fake, then no one is safe if you, if you own a mortgage. And of course, what we saw in the crisis is that this proliferation of foreclosures stunted the economic recovery. It's just a fact that in harder-hit areas, the economy came back much more slowly. So it doesn't just affect people with mortgages, but anyone who lives in that area is going to suffer from a a worse economy that that is part of this fact that we had this debt overhang, people weren't spending at the level they might otherwise if we had fixed the problem. So this was an economic issue in addition to being obviously a criminal issue. Well, and people with retirement investments, all kinds of things like that are really directly affected. Right, because those were some of the owners of mortgage-backed securities were people who own pension funds and people who, you know, uh, had those in their portfolios. Pension funds were one of the larger purchasers of mortgage-backed securities, and those investors, by and large, got ripped off because they bought the securities on the information and belief that the trustee owned legal title on the loan. And when they had to engage in all these machinations through third parties or through the courts to try to prove that they owned it, all of those costs bore upon the investors. The investors ended up paying for the sin that was committed by the trustees, and they lost their shirts in mortgage-backed securities. And so that rippled out, and that was another spoke of this, and it rippled out and affected anyone who was involved with a public pension fund. And to this day, those actually are the cases that are still pending in courts all across the country because those pension funds, they're not forgiving the situation. They're suing the heck out of the banks, correct? Yes, they're popping mad, and, uh, which is <laughs> yeah. I mean, the show. Um, and they're, they're very upset about this, and they want the banks to repurchase the loans and the mortgage-backed securities and there have been some settlements around that. Uh, Bank of America did one for, I believe, about $8.5 billion. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, uh, this is a legal mess. I mean, when you mess with securitization and these very precise steps that have to be followed in property law, you're going to spin out these lawsuits and allegations that last decades until we get rid of every 
securitized private label securities loan that was out there from 2003 to 2007, this, is, this legacy is still going to be with us. I think we're about two decades away from really being beyond this. So my last question here at the top of the show is, when writing about Michael's take on all of this fairly early in the book, he says, and you relay, that he described it as the biggest transfer of wealth the world has ever seen. It is, isn't it? I mean, it's just a fact that the largest market in the world is the U.S. residential housing market. And when you're seeing what is effectively stealing, I mean, if you are pursuing a foreclosure and you can't prove you own the loan, it's no different than me pursuing the return of my car when it's not my car. And that's theft. And so if you position it that way, then this is this massive transfer of wealth. You're talking about trillions of dollars worth of homes that have been transferred to the financial industry based on falsehoods, based on false evidence. And yeah, we have to reckon with that, that this went on that, and that it continues to go on because we did a lot of settlements around this conduct, but we never actually stopped the activity. And every day in America, people are still thrown out of their homes based on false documents. My three subjects did everything they could to present this on a silver platter to every major law enforcement official in the United States. And they looked at it like it was a too puny fish and threw it back in the ocean. And, you know, one thing I explore in the book is, is why that happened and how we can reckon with this notion that, you know, we have a two-tiered system of justice in this country and, and who you are matters more than what you did. Yeah, it absolutely does. And we'll come to that. We'll talk about that in Extra Mad, the extended part of our show that's available via the podcast. Thank you all for joining us today on Hopping Mad. You can go the full carrot by following us on Twitter at I'm Hopping Mad or at Will McLeod 99 and at Arliss Bunny. Our podcasts are available on Stitcher, iTunes, Google Play. And if you have a second to give us a thumbs up, it's a big help. As always, our site is imhoppingmad.com, and you can go there and reach us via both our comment page and through our contact page. We'd love to hear from you. David, thank you so very much for being here, and until next week, carrots to you and yours. We're back on Hopping Mad with the extra mad portion of our interview. David, like cockroaches and Twinkies, MERS is everywhere and will likely be one of the few things to survive a nuclear holocaust. Why? <laughs> yeah, it just certainly seems so, right? Uh, so MERS was this tactic that big banks used to really save them a bunch of money. It involved, you know, I mean, during the crisis, during the housing bubble, these mortgages were purchased from an originator, and then they did a number of other transfers before they transferred them into the trust. And that was done for something called bankruptcy remoteness. The idea was that if the originator went out of business, and a lot of them did, if you did these separate transfers, you would still be able to recoup your loss from somebody along that chain. So that was the sort of concept behind it. So they did you know, at least two or three transfers intermediately excluded from the transfer from the originator to the investment bank 
and then from the last bank in the chain into the trust. So, you know, you have a minimum of four to five transfers on each loan, and you're talking about millions of loans. Well, under the normal circumstance, each one of those would have to create some paper, some uh, assignments of mortgage, which, you know, somebody would have to generate. Those documents would have to be filed at the county office for a nominal fee, $50 or so. Those documents would have to be stored with some sort of document custodian so that they could be, you know, returned and taken out at such time that they are needed during a sale of the home or a foreclosure. And so that would be a very time-consuming and costly process. So the banks created this thing called MERS. It stands for the Mortgage Electronic Registration System. And the idea was that at the outset, MERS was the nominee for the originator of the loan. And so what the county recording office saw was that the, the loan went to MERS. And then inside MERS was this database. MERS is a shell company. I think 60 people work there. But they hold this database. And all of the transfers that I just talked about, these transfers from the sponsor over to the different entities and then into the trust, they would be done on the MERS database in a private spreadsheet, basically privatizing the system of property records law. And so they privatized them. They put them on this spreadsheet. Thousands of people had access to the spreadsheet. There were no double checks. There were no troubleshooting on this spreadsheet. They didn't have the staff to do any of that. And they frequently got it wrong inside the spreadsheet, or they just neglected to write down what the transfers were. And at the end of that process, they would spit out a transfer from MERS to the foreclosing entity, whoever that trustee is, and that would be the only thing that the recording office would see. The problem is, is that that document wasn't generated in time. There were legal questions over whether MERS had the ability, since they had no interest in the loan, to assign a mortgage to somebody else. That has been adjudicated in every, practically every state in this country has had a MERS lawsuit at one part or another. I still get emails from somebody, some VP of communications at MERS, every time they win a lawsuit, they send me one. They, when they lose the lawsuit, they don't send me the press release. <laughs> of course not. But when they win the lawsuit, they send me the press release and say, this proves that MERS is legal. MERS initially foreclosed in its own name. They had to stop doing that because that was seen as, as completely illegal and out of bounds. But MERS goes on today. At the height of MERS, they had 60 million loans on their database. And this was a massive amount of tax evasion, number one, because uh, county, uh, counties were deprived uh, millions, if not billions of dollars in fees that they would otherwise have collected on all of these mortgage transfers. And it was chaotic from a legal perspective, which goes on to this day. But MERS, as you said, continues to survive. So to talk specifics, because I think that these stories will be a lot more impactful. We talk about the way they're happening to, to individuals. And I'm asking this knowing that you're not a lawyer and you're not giving legal advice. There was a family in, in my hometown of Fort Lauderdale. And I'm not going to use their names because I don't know the end of this story because it's so hard to track down information like this right now. They built a house in 2001. They built it. They took out a mortgage and then at the height of the financial crisis, when everything was going not so well for them, they took out a second mortgage. They fell behind. 
on that second mortgage, but they stayed current on their first mortgage. Mm-hmm. Suddenly, the bank stopped accepting all of their payments on that primary mortgage mm. and wouldn't accept any payments and foreclosure proceedings were going through. And despite the fact that they were attempting to make things good with the tiny little predatory bank that was the group that was doing their second mortgage, the holder of the second mortgage, which was in default, had paid off their primary mortgage because it was protecting them from foreclosure and then used all the tactics you're describing in your book. There was no documentary evidence that they even owned what they owned. There was no physical evidence of the mortgage. And also the way that the foreclosure was originally ruled was something you describe as rocket docket, where people went to the courthouse to try to see if they couldn't get justice done for the family. And he just ran through about 40 foreclosures in about a half an hour, just yeah. ran them through and cheered each time they, he ran, he foreclosed in someone's home without checking the data, without really looking particularly hard at what the evidence was. How common are stories like that? And, and the, the sad news about this is this home these people built, I don't know if they still live there because after it turned out that it wasn't a big bank, it was this little bank that had paid off the big bank, the story just goes cold in the news. Right. Yeah. You know, aspects of what you're talking about are very common. The rocket docket was a known and, you know, kind of a known concern. At one point, Florida funded dozens of retired judges to come in with the express purpose of disposing of cases. And they would even say, my job is to dispose of this case, not to not to, you know, adjudicate it, not to figure out uh, who was right and who was wrong, but to dispose of it. And they shot, they had a mandate to get through 63% of the foreclosure backlog. And they would hold judicial hearings in hallways. They would hold them in conference rooms. It was absolute chaos in the Florida courts. So that part is very common. This idea that a second lien holder would pay off the first lien in order to get their hands on the home, that's pretty unusual, especially if I mean, I guess it would depend on how much was owed on that first lien, whether or not it was even worthwhile for them to do that, because, you know, they would they were getting this in order to foreclose. But, you know, how what is that value of the home and how much did it cost to pay off the first lien? So that that is a pretty unusual situation. I I don't know that I've heard much about that kind of thing happening, but it doesn't surprise me. I mean, nothing surprises me in this in this situation. This kind of stuff just happens over and over again, and, and it's, it's really tragic. Well, it's a typical Florida development story on, on that front. The uh, property they built on was right next to a very expensive housing complex. And so while the home wasn't particularly valuable, the land it was sitting on was incredibly valuable to developers uh, because it was standing in the way of them opening up space for even more development of this luxury home. I see. I see. So that's, that's that I think, sense. why it would be valuable. Well, that makes sense. Yeah. So, yeah, you could see that, uh, you know, all you you had this fight between the first lien holders and the second lien holders uh, repeatedly in this process. And people would kind of foolishly pay on their second lien, but not their first, uh, which was, uh, you, you know, you're describing the alternate, the opposite scenario. But people would do that not knowing that the first lien is the one who has primary responsibility on the foreclosure and can stop the junior lien holder from from doing that. There's a lot of misinformation, a lot of uncertainty. And and when you get into these multiple mortgages and and these these home equity lines of credit, it really uh, engendered this this crisis. 
it's all incredibly murky and looks like it was designed essentially not to fund people's home ownership at this point, but to take things away from them. Well, absolutely. I mean, the majority of the subprime loans that were generated during the crisis were actually what is known as cash out refinances. In other words, people who had equity in their homes were given this offer to take out a new mortgage and to take cash, you know, uh, use their home as an ATM, essentially, once when the prices were going up and take out cash to pay for other expenses. This was done through cold calling in, in areas like Cleveland and Detroit, where people were longtime residents and had, you know, owned their homes outright or had a lot of equity in their homes. And they were induced to give it away to the bank for a, a predatory product that they were told to ignore the fine print on because they could always refinance their way again out of trouble if they had trouble when the the loan reset or the interest rate went up or anything like that. So this was plunder. I mean, this was uh, on the part of, and it was part of the fuel of we have to fund more loans, we have to fund more loans because people upstream who are investors were demanding them. So they went to people who already owned homes. And got them to pull out their equity. So it was, it was, it was the, the, the really the wholesale kind of plunder. Uh, there's Brad Miller, who's a former congressman. He helped write the language that created the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. He calls the foreclosure crisis an extinction event for the black and Latino middle class. Because that's who really was targeted, particularly with cash out refinances. It was people of color who had equity in their homes. And it was just robbed from them. And the way the media reported on that afterwards is they pretended that all these folks had been incredibly irresponsible and bought massive homes in rich neighborhoods they couldn't afford to live in. And, you know, really did a lot of race baiting and racist reporting on the topic where they argued that working class Latino and black folks weren't people who'd owned homes for generations and had them taken out from under them. They were people who were buying luxury homes they couldn't afford. That and was they were irresponsible. Said. Yes. Right. Yes. And there was always the context of, you know, designating people either responsible or irresponsible borrowers. And that proved an impediment to mitigating the effects of the foreclosure crisis, even inside the White House. They talked in that in those terms, whether it was a responsible or an irresponsible borrower, and it constrained what they ended up doing in terms of offering incentives or offering support for loan modifications. And that's why the main loan modification program that the administration put forward, known as HAMP, or the Home Affordable Modification Program, was such a failure because it tried to thread this needle and they didn't want a headline that somebody who flipped 17 houses ended up getting a modification on their loan. And they made it very discretionary on the part of these mortgage servicer companies that had no interest in modifying people's loans because it literally would have cut their own pay for them to cut the principal balance on a loan. And yet, if they kept people lingering in default, they could use HAMP like a predatory lending program and squeeze out as many payments as they could and then foreclose and w- and get back from the investors all the advances and fees that they charged in the run-up to that. So the, the idea of responsibility and irresponsibility was only put on the part of the homeowners and not on the part of the banks and mortgage servicing companies who were incredibly irresponsible 
in terms of uh, what they did on things that could have been a win-win if they just kept people in their homes. David, there are a number of different essentially, crim- well, not essentially, there are a number of criminographic elements which banded together to become this massive, impenetrable core of this whole situation. And I, at one point in time through the book, I just finally wrote down the different kinds of crime that were identified. And I came up with what I think of as basic fraud. In other words, employees of servicers, notaries, lawyers, lying, just flat out lying, securities fraud, which is a whole different level of fraud, tax evasion, and that really applies back to the REMIC issue that you were talking about, predatory servicing, somebody lost their house or they ended up being foreclosed upon for 14 cents, and then the predatory servicing added up on that 14 cents, planned and forced foreclosure, constitutional violations of due process, prosecutorial misconduct, and even possibly murder. Can you, <laughs> I mean, I mean, of all crazy, I mean, it just, possibly. just when you thought you'd heard the most crazy story out of all of this, the most unbelievable story, then that comes along. A witness gets, you know, dies the day before a trial, you know, conveniently, supposedly of suicide. Can you talk a little bit about, can you sort of break out the crimes a little bit and talk about how each of those contributed to the overall mix, this soup that became this crisis? Yeah, I think that's true. You know, I remember several years ago when I did a Netroots Nation presentation on foreclosure fraud, I laid out all of those different types of fraud that were involved in this process. Uh, And you highlight some of them. I mean, it really started at the beginning, right, with origination. When people were issued loans, they were put into loans that they, when they qualified for better terms, they were put into worse terms because their funders, who were the investment banks, wanted loans with higher interest rates because they could sell them uh, for higher, you know, when they went through the mortgage-backed securities, they could sell them for a higher rate. And that happened Uh, to Lisa, in fact, correct? Yeah, she was put into a 10-year interest-only loan when she could have qualified for a prime loan. You know, there was appraisal fraud at the beginning where these loans were appraised higher than they actually were, the properties themselves. There was all sorts of fraud for the servicing process. You mentioned predatory servicing. That was something that Nye Laval coined. He was a guy who uh, saw this in the 1980s and fought for 10 years on on a home that he bought for his parents, where every manner of fees and different, something called force-placed insurance, which was when an insurance policy lapses, they'll just slap a new insurance policy on your loan and add it to your balance. Even if the original insurance policy didn't lapse, but it was in within 30 days of lapsing. And, and there was a kick. parents had made all the payments on that house. It's not like they were in, in arrears in any way. And, that, and yet it was taken away from them because there were hidden fees that, uh, that they were, you know, they fell into arrears on those hidden fees. And then that, those balloon because there were default fees put on that and this forced place insurance fee and all these other fees. And, and it was basically through software. I mean, uh, what he found is that you could, if you're a servicing company, you could sort of dial up or down how many, you know, how much you can earn in fees by simply placing them through a keystroke entry. So, so you had 
fraud in the origination process and fraud in the securitization process. And we've heard about that, where the loans were of worse quality than the investors in them were informed of. And the investors were never told that they were buying a bunch of garbage loans rather than investment quality loans. So that was another aspect. And then you have securitization fail, which was this inability to properly transfer the loans. Uh, and the cover up of that was foreclosure fraud, which was fraudulent documents used to foreclose on people. Even within that, there's also loan modification fraud where where someone would apply for a loan modification and their documents were routinely lost or the servicers engaged in behavior that forced people into default rather than modifying their loans, didn't give them proper single point of contact. They didn't give them a proper reason for why they denied them. They would linger waiting a year to say, to tell someone whether or not they qualified for a permanent modification while allowing them to make trial payments that were lower. And then at the end of that process, they say, actually, you were denied and you owe us every, the balance between those original and the modified payments. And you owe it to us within two weeks or we're going to foreclose on you. That was done routinely. That was actually the first thing that was done that I heard about when a friend of mine got involved in a situation just like that. So, you know, it was fraud up and down the line, and I'm missing a bunch of them, I think. (laughs) You know, even though I told you about a bunch of them, I'm sure I'm missing some. And, you know, everything beyond that point was just a cover-up. Up to and including that very mysterious suicide, which was meant to to cover up this process of of fraudulently documenting uh, notices of default. So it was, uh, 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 and they did play out with one another. You could not have had the mass of securitization that we had during the crisis and during the bubble without not following the required steps of transfer. The, the property law sort of acted, at, it would have acted as a wet blanket on this go-go securitization because it was a slow, deliberate, pen and paper process where people were supposed to very deliberately document who owns what and who transferred what to whom. And if they had to do that, they could not have securitized so many loans and uh, move them through the system so rapidly. And so one fraud sort of begat another in that. There's also a, a strain of thought that, well, these loans would not have qualified for remix status if it was known that they were of such bad quality. And so they had to deny the paper showing these loans because to do otherwise would have jeopardized the tax advantages that were embedded in the securitization process. So there were a lot of symbiotic ways in which the fraud uh, was layered on top of one another. And meanwhile, the regulators went to Disneyland? (laughs) I mean, the regulators were definitely asleep at the switch before the bubble and after it popped. And, you know, this story really follows the people that figured this out and that built a movement with one another to expose it. And once they did that, they distributed this evidence that they had collected to practically every major law enforcement office in this country, whether it was state attorneys generals who were involved in this investigation of foreclosure fraud. Once it really 
came out and the top five mortgage companies in America actually put a pause on their foreclosure operations because they knew them to be untoward or illegal in some way. The Lisa and Lynn acted as sort of unpaid researchers for this 50-state investigation that was generated out of that uh, pause in foreclosure operations. They would distribute reams of documents to every major state attorney general's office in the country. What was staggering about that to me is that they didn't send the same thing to everybody. If you were the Illinois attorney general, you received a packet that was Illinois homeowners and Illinois fraud. In other words, right. they, they targeted every state individually and every state attorney general got their own personalized packet. Customized documents showing evidence of fraud. Yes. And they did that at the state level, at the national level. Uh, and there was no one in law enforcement that could say that they were ignorant of this. This was handed to them on a silver platter. Lynn herself initiated the only criminal investigation, well, one of two, one of two criminal investigations into this misconduct, but the only federal one. And it was a federal grand jury that was impaneled for it out of Jacksonville, Florida, looking into the mass distribution of false documents through DocX, which was a subsidiary of Lender Processing Services, which was this third-party provider to uh, their bank clients of these fraudulent, forged, and, and backdated and false documents. And that was a serious investigation. Over 75 interviews, I believe, hundreds of subpoenas, millions of documents that LPS gave in discovery. And it ended up with one conviction, only one conviction. And it was a woman named Lorraine Brown, who was the CEO of DocX. And in that conviction, which was for conspiracy, it was, it was termed a conspiracy of one. It was said that uh, Lorraine Brown's office, DocX, distributed and created these fraudulent documents, quote unquote, unbeknownst to DocX's clients even though they were the ones asking for the documents. And so she was accused essentially of duping the bank, the banks, that the banks were the victims of her conduct, not the willing participants. So clearly Lynn's big mistake was not sending along a copy of the page from, you know, Webster's dictionary that shows the definition of the word conspiracy. <laughs> yeah, something like that. <laughs> Uh, Lynn was very disillusioned by all this. She was someone, you know, Lisa and Michael worked outside the system. They were, they were not, they had no history of, uh, no legal background, legal training of any kind. Lynn was a lawyer and she worked in white collar fraud. She didn't work on mortgages. It was in insurance fraud and workers comp fraud, but she was aware of this process and she understood forensic examinations of fraudulent documents and, and, and fraudulent cases. She thought, I have all this evidence on my side. I can go work my inside game with my friends, because they, those were her friends at the uh, Jacksonville F FBI and the U.S. Attorney's Office there. I could work this inside game, and I know that the truth will win out. And, and she became incredibly disillusioned to find that it didn't in this case, that uh, there was something preventing the system from working at some level. And she, she ultimately uh, was, she told me she was lied to by you know, people in D.C. time and again. 
and that she ultimately doesn't believe anymore that, that we have a justice system with the courage to, to follow its mission. I think one of her friends said to her with incredible discouragement, basically, the public was not served. Yes, she said that uh, this was after Lorraine Brown was convicted. She called up one of her friends at the FBI and, and thanked him for at least, you know, proving that these were crimes, that somebody could go to jail for them. And that person, yeah, after a long pause said, I don't think the public was very well served. I think there was, uh, the, the implication is, is that the, the people in Jacksonville, the FBI, the U.S. Attorney's Office, they were good people. They wanted to follow this trail wherever it led. But Washington basically bottled them up. And that, that was the impression that she got and that people who were also working on the case got out of this. Okay, so let's go there. Not only did our government not fight for us by using the walk loudly and carry a wet noodle tactic, but <laughs> here, I, I, in fact, I particularly call out the Obama administration. This really, this is really on them. But ultimately, they settled for just a mere pittance, these practices used by banks and servicers to steal homes from people. And because they settled, they ensconced this into law, the various settlements that the government made, and there were a number of them, but they ultimately functionally legalized securitization fail. As you say, they codified predatory servicing, correct? Yeah, I, 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 that is really truly what I believe. You know, these settlements... They, the head, they were clearly designed to generate a big headline number. That was the point of the settlement, that we can stand in front of a podium and say we executed a $25 billion settlement and we got tough on the banks. And remember, this was an election year when this finally got handled, 2012. The truth is, is that the, the actual number, if you were talking about an actual penalty on these banks, uh, was far less than advertised. Uh, it was $25 billion. This is I'm talking about the National Mortgage Settlement of 2012, but the real cash settlement was $5 billion, which is one-fifth of that. The rest was in the form of credits that were could have been uh, granted for something as little as donating a home or bulldozing a home and, and creating an anti-blight measure or uh, engaging in a short sale which is where the homeowner has to leave the home and sells it for less than what they owe on the mortgage. And the bank says, okay, we won't come after you for the balance of that, which is fine, but it, it results in the homeowner leaving the home. And more transactions in the national mortgage settlement ended up displacing people from their homes than saving them in any meaningful way. And so, you know, and as you say, it codified predatory servicing because the standards, there were servicing standards in the national mortgage settlement. And under the agreement, they had these threshold error rates. And that meant that the bank could screw up a certain portion of loans uh, as long as they didn't go above the threshold error rate. They were able to do that with relative impunity. And when and you say screw up, you mean take someone's house. That One in 20, yes, 5%. That was the threshold error rate for a wrongful foreclosure. And so, you know, you're talking about a million homes out there 
20,000 could be taken away uh, illegally based on this, these threshold error rates. It's an incredible uh, kind of byproduct of this. And, uh, you know, it basically set a number on wrongful foreclosures. You know, people who lost their homes in the national mortgage settlement, they got $1,480, barely two months rent, a sorry you lost your home check. That put a price tag on this, on this misconduct. And it's an appallingly low price tag. And it's no surprise since nobody was charged criminally. And since the civil settlement was weak and much weaker than described in the big headline number, that this conduct continues to persist today. So my last technical question is, I think it's really important for folks to know if they're in a judicial versus a non-judicial foreclosure state. Can you talk about that for just a second? Sure. So in 23 states across the country, you actually need judicial sign-off to get a foreclosure. A bank has to sue you and there has to be either a trial or, or some sort of judge saying a summary judgment or something where a judge looks at the evidence and says, okay, this all makes sense. You got the foreclosure and then you can go ahead. In 27 other states, they are non-judicial foreclosure states. All you have to do is post a notice of default somewhere Uh, The steps vary from state to state, but as a a homeowner, you don't get your day in court. You would have to affirmatively sue in order to stop a foreclosure through the courts in a non-judicial foreclosure state. And the difference there really, I mean, in my context, in the context of the book, the way in which these false documents were kind of rooted out, it was much easier to do so in the context of a court case because those are public documents that are filed. And so of the four major states in which foreclosures really hit, which are known as the sand states, Florida, California, Arizona, Nevada, only Florida of those four is a judicial foreclosure state. And so it was just easier in that state to locate the source of this fraud. And that's why I believe so much of the activism around this came out of Florida. Now, of course, one thing I mentioned in the book is that Florida tried to change the rules midstream. Uh, The legislature tried to make themselves a non-judicial foreclosure state, and that prompted Lisa and Michael to start this big rally in, in Tallahassee where they went up on buses all throughout the state, and they held this lobby day where they gave speeches and they they met with legislators and met with state government officials to try to stop this. And they did slow it down for about three years. And Florida never became a non-judicial state. They did put in some loosening of foreclosure laws uh, some years down the road. But they were actually so poorly designed that at first it actually stopped foreclosures rather than accelerating them. But, you know, that was that was part of this thing that if you could make it a non-judicial foreclosure state, you could hide the ball, as it were. You could you could keep this out of the public records and out of the public eye in a much better way. Blogs of people directly involved as well as and by the way, there are some amazing blogs of people who were directly involved. Michael and Lisa both had an incredible voice on their blogs, but blogs of people directly involved, as well as those of bloggers like Eve Smith at Naked Capitalism, played an absolutely central role in exposing the real criminographic elements of this crisis and publicizing them. I I know you have a 
a bias, and of course, so do we, but would you talk specifically about how blogs helped and why they weren't just shouting into the wind? Yeah, I think a lot of this story is kind of a story of the blogosphere, or at least one part of it. You know, unlike previous eras of activism, in this case, when these individuals wanted to fight, they started their own websites, and they networked with one another and distributed all the research that they compiled online and uh, for all to see. And that was very powerful. And, you know, in my research going back and writing this book, I was able to look at what they did every single day because they ran their own blogs. There's this very fertile moment. If you're a historian talking about the era from like 2006 to maybe 2012, you have this wealth of information, these public journals and diaries that you can really track people day by day in terms of what they did and what they were thinking. And so that was a tremendous resource in writing the book, but it was also a tremendous resource in terms of people following this crisis in real time. And the fact that they could post the evidence, whether it was the actual documents themselves and showing the fraud within them, or depositions where employees would admit to not having any understanding of uh, what they were signing. The fact that you could do that and look very directly, it made it much harder to look away from this scandal. And it also made it easier for the traditional media to plug into it because it was right there for them to, to you know, take with them and, and use in their own stories. So the blogosphere played a, a critical role in exposing this scandal and, and moving it forward. And I think without it, you wouldn't have heard any of this. It, it just would have been, you know, seen as the crazed rantings of a few attorneys. The fact that you could see it directly made all the difference to me. And that, to me, that's also how you get, you know, Naked Capitalism and Fire Dog Lake is how you get Mother Jones and Rolling Stone to come to the party. Absolutely. Yeah, and, yeah it you know, the chain. Absolutely. I agree with that. You know, this is this is a story about uh, how movements originate. And uh, in our digital age, movements originate online. I mean, this uh, the story of the foreclosure fraud blogosphere is an early version of the story of Occupy Wall Street or well, the student debt movement, or the low-wage worker fight for 15, or the Bernie Sanders campaign. I mean, these are all on a continuum, in my view. Well, yeah, and you, to and add to that... Quote, the quote from the book that just to directly is, without the foreclosure fraud movement, there is no Occupy Wall Street. There is no Elizabeth Warren wing of the Democratic Party. There's no student debt movement, or low-wage worker movement, or movement to transfer money to credit unions, or community banks. Enormously yeah. powerful. I, I believe that. And I, I think that, you know, movements like this, they, they don't always uh, achieve all of their goals, but they sort of crash like waves on a shore and each one gets closer and closer and closer. We all know how hard it is to do, you know, the work of politics and the work of, of getting better outcomes. And, you know, these were people who very early in the game saw this fraud and tried to expose it and tried to get a better solution. And while they didn't get everything they wanted, they did puncture the aura of the banks, I think, in a fundamental way where you're seeing, you know, a real willingness on the part of the mainstream of the Democratic Party to really challenge the financial industry 
in a way that was somewhat unthinkable a decade ago. And Will, yeah. you were there at Zuccotti Park. You can speak to this personally. Yeah, and that's what I was going to add is as someone who was there at Zuccotti Park from the third day of the occupation, as someone who participated in that movement, we relied very heavily on the work of those, I would say, citizen journalists rather than bloggers, those people who tried to make sure that we knew what was going on, that was incredibly valuable to us without the intellectual backing that the people doing that work provided, we would not have gotten as far as we did. We built on them. And those people who were activists who met in that park and who met in online spaces are continuing that work today. You're absolutely right when you say this as someone who's seen this on the ground level. This is exactly what's going on. Yeah. And, And, you know, one thing I do talk about in the book is this offshoot of Occupy Wall Street known as Occupy Our Homes, which was very specifically focused on this foreclosure issue. And they engaged in direct actions to try to barricade themselves to the front porches of homes and and refuse to be evicted when the sheriff came to town. But they were were effective. They they were very effective. They were very effective. They used that sort of direct action as the spur. And then, you know, the carrot was the negotiations behind the scenes. And they were very successful in getting people better outcomes, particularly in some pockets where occupier homes offshoots were very, very well coordinated, whether it was Atlanta or Minneapolis or Rochester, New York. And I talk about some of those case studies in the book. And Lynn actually brought in a lot of occupier homes activists for a conference in Palm Beach at one point later on. And, and she provided support. And I think they provide a lot of intellectual support for the work, the direct action work and activism work that Occupy Our Homes was doing. And so there was a very, a very much a, a very direct, demonstrable symbiotic relationship there between those two. And I, I definitely think they played a, a big role. I have to say that kind of thing really encourages me. David, thank you so much for taking your time and joining us today. This has been really really amazing. And also, if you're still in touch with Lisa and her daughter, Jenna, still wants a bunny, I can hook that girl up. <laughs> well, I'll have, to, uh, I'll have to let her know that. You know, I should tell your, your people that Lynn ended up getting, you know, she filed her own case. She got a settlement and she ended up uh, as a whistleblower making uh, several million dollars that she uses now as part of a foundation to fight and raise awareness for foreclosures. But Lisa and Michael, at the end of the book, you see that they're working for a local lawyer, and that that actually has ended. And Lisa and Michael are actually uh, out of work right now. So anyone listening to this uh, who wants, who might need the services of an incredible researcher who are tireless and perseverance uh, par excellence, and who really can can be a benefit to your organization, I urge you, uh, you know, get in touch with Arliss or somebody, and they'll get in touch with me. You know, these people not only need to be recognized, but need to be rewarded for what they did for everyone who owns a home. And they still have a lot to add. Absolutely. Yeah, I'm staggered that somebody hasn't already snapped them up because very clearly in the book, these are invaluable, dogged, hardworking, smart, creative folks. Just just the creativity they used in the way they organized various events and things was really impressive to me. And so folks, these are great people. If you know a not-for-profit or a a company out there who's looking for people to move them forward, 
These are great employees. You've been listening to Hopping Mad here on Netroots Radio. We'll be back with you next week. Thanks again to David Dayen for joining us here today. Carrots to you and yours. <laughs>